What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, who do I have to sleep with around here? I got a stoli martini with a twist of lemon. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> this is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to the first episode of Sundays with Kate. a podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. Every week we will choose a film for discussion, and I thought that there is no better start than with the film that brought her to global stardom. We will be discussing Elizabeth, the 1998 Shekhar Kapoor movie that starred Kate Blanchett. And my guest today is Theo Bugby. We met and became fast friends Um, over a period of a few months in 2015 where we saw another Kate movie, Carol, several times. <laughs> Hello, Mertada. Welcome to the podcast, Teo. Thanks for having me. Here with you on the day that we talk about the movie that I know made you fall in love with Kate Blanchett, a topic of conversation which has come up maybe every single time we've ever hung out. <laughs> yes, I do talk about Kate a lot. So if you know me and you've hung out with me, you definitely would notice that. So Elizabeth, I remember I was on a trip to London. I had still not moved to the States. So I was living back in Sudan. I was in London. Sometime in the fall of 98, maybe October or November, and I went and saw Elizabeth at a movie theater in Marble Arch. I still remember it. And I could not believe this actress. I, I didn't know her. I just saw the movie because it seemed like a movie I'd be interested in. And I completely and utterly fell in love. And here we are, almost 20 years later. Actually, we're more than 20 years. So who does Kate play? <laughs> Kate in this movie, you may guess, is playing Queen Elizabeth I of England, though she is only of one of the uh, protectorates. And this is one of many movies in which the character she plays is the title of the movie. Blue Jasmine, Charlotte Grey, Carol... Thank God he met Lizzie. She's always this the is, title character. This would be a very good late-night trivia question. Name all of the Kate Blanchett movies in which her, her character is the title of the movie. Yes. You would do very well. I would definitely. I would win that, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> so Elizabeth was directed by Shekhar Kapoor, and among the many, many actors in it, Richard Attenborough, Jeffrey Rush, Joseph Fiennes, Emily Mortimer, Kelly McDonald, Fanny Ardant, Daniel Craig, and others. There are so many sort of well-known names in that cast. Well, let's not forget the two most important, Alfie and Lily Allen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alfie Allen and Lily Allen play, were kids at the time, and they play these kids that appear later in the movie. And I think they got cast because their mom, Alison Owens, is one of the movie's producers. I mean, and they have the souls of scamps. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> it wound up working out in favor of the movie. Kate is introduced seven minutes into the movie, and, I and this is a grand introduction, and part of probably why people stood up and noticed, because for the first six, seven minutes of the movie, she's talked about, And then the camera goes to this field, and there are many women dancing in the field. And then... And she's, she's like the hot one. She's, she's definitely like, the hot one. The way one. that it's staged, it's definitely like you're supposed to notice. Yes. You're supposed to notice her, but also there's a little bit of a divergent. Because then Kelly McDonald comes with Joseph Fiennes on a horse, and you're like, is that Elizabeth? Is that the hot one? <laughs> Is she the new hot one? <laughs> yes. But then it goes back and all the other ladies go away and it's just Elizabeth in the frame. And that's the first time you see Kate. She also doesn't really talk in that scene too much. It's a lot of looking around. Yes. And then the credits start playing and it's just her and Josephine dancing and canoodling. 
Gross. <laughs> Gross. We're, we're going to talk at some point about how I feel about Joseph Fiennes, but I, like, can't deal. 1998 was a real year for him. Yeah. And it was, like, the one year where everyone lost their minds and thought he was the hot Fiennes. But it was only for that year. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> it was, like, it's, like, ska. <laughs> yeah. It was just that one year and then never again. Yeah. As, it, like, yes, time corrected itself. So... The way that they're they're showing um, Elizabeth and Lord Dudley canoodling and sort of kissing on each other. Sorry, Lord Dudley. I lost it. Go ahead. <laughs> it's one I think is one of the reasons why this movie was beloved and sort of successful and well-reviewed at the time. Because it presented this new version of history. Especially of history of Elizabeth I. Yes, a slutty virgin. Very slutty. <laughs> so it was a carnal Elizabeth. It was also a very violent Elizabeth. There is a lot of violence in this movie. And a lot of violent emotions. Everybody's emotions are at 7,000. Which is not what you are used to seeing in sort of masterpiece theater history, which... For British people, yeah. For know? British people, yes. They're very, they're very buttoned up. Mm-hmm. So, um, I know you have something to say about how the emotions in this movie are so high at all times. Well, so you and I have a different relationship with this movie in general, which is to say that when it came out, I was five years old. <laughs> wow, yes. I was five years old, so I had maybe seen a movie or two with the other Elizabeth I, Betty Davis, but I had not made my way to Kate Blanchett yet. I was not old enough to be following the Oscars. Um, and so I came to this movie much later mm-hmm. when I was in like a first blush of I need to watch every movie that's ever been nominated for Best Actress. And at the time, I did not particularly care for it. Mm-hmm. But didn't really have any feelings about it. And then promptly forgot about it for, like, ten years, besides being, like, <laughs> spicy in conversations to say, actually, I think Gwyneth Paltrow should have one. <laughs> mm, yes. Um, and then rewatched it a couple years ago to find it completely incoherent. <laughs> 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 to think, as a child, I rejected this movie because it was too much. Yeah. <laughs> too much for me. And in a way that was off-putting I like find the sort of like hyper emotionalism which is something that I like in a lot of movies I tend to respond to I love a melodrama I love sort of a heightened state of emotions I love a film that takes form and color and uh, mise-en-scene and staging and uses all of those things to like portray a single feeling at a at a given time so that you're overwhelmed by a feeling Mm -hmm. and and an image but what's going on in this movie is that none of those things are coming together (laughs) so the clothes are crazy the dialogue is crazy the performances are like in completely different zones and worlds from each other there's no relationship in the staging that's suggesting what is being expressed through the dialogue Mm -hmm. and so it comes across for me as like a tornado. (laughs) Uh, It's a hurricane. It's a tornado of feelings. I'm just being whipped back and forth in a lot of people's just passion for England. Yes. And I think, you know, it does, I agree that, you know, I love this movie at the time because I just fell in love with Kate. And I remember a lot of like her scenes, especially I think the ending of the movie is something that is very memorable and sort of indelible in that because you see her first in this introduction that we just talked about, and she's just another young woman dancing in the field. And then the end scene is this image that we all know of Elizabeth I. And so literally that ending shows you how that little girl at the beginning becomes this image of Elizabeth that, you know, with the white face on, you know, the white makeup on her face and the, the short red hair. Um. Observe Lord Burley. I have a lot of questions about the hair specifically, (laughs) if we could talk about that, because, so, (laughs) there comes a point, at the beginning of the movie, she has long, beautiful, flowing hair, and that's how you're introduced to her, she has this magnificent, like, gorgeous mane of, like, wig. (laughs) Yes, and that is not how we know Elizabeth I to look. Right, exactly. But then... 
Then by the end, as you said, she has, like, the sort of crown of curls. But there's a middle point, hair-wise, that the movie does not address, where she fucks once and then wakes up the next day with crown of curls, but also long hair coming back from it. It's like a bit of a party in the front, mane in the back. But it's never explained, and part of it... Sex transformed her. <laughs> her curl pattern is completely different. She, like, went from, like, a 1A to a 3B overnight. Yeah, so not only is there no consistency in emotions, there is no consistency in wigs. And those wigs were nuts. And it's almost like two wigs at once. Like, there was a front wig and a back wig. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole plot point, a whole scene where she gets just the back wig cut off. Yes. And nothing else goes. It's just the front wig from from the rest of of the movie on. Uh I mean, wig aficionados, of which we know many are also actress aficionados, are going to love this part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to go back a little bit and ask you, you said you watched this movie later on, you didn't see it at the time because you were too young. But, like, was that the first time you saw Kate? Or have, or did you have a history with her when you saw the movie? I was trying... I did have a history of her when I saw the movie. So I think the first thing that I ever saw her in would have been Lord of the Rings. Mm. Which came out when I was eight. Wow. <laughs> and so it was a big movie for me in theaters yeah. at the time. Um, and it's a funny thing because I do think that was the first thing I ever saw her in, but I remember she has a big scene in that mm-hmm. where it's just, instead of a dark lord, you will have a queen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I remember that scene happening and having the thought. This is a famous person. (laughs) So I knew her as a famous person before before I knew her as an actress. Yeah. And then knew her very specifically as the famous person who's brought in to do the big monologue, Mm. which is what happens in in Lord of the Rings. And then I think I saw The Aviator next, which I was a huge fan growing up of Catherine Hepburn and a huge fan of like classic film in general. Um, and thought she was amazing in that. It is a very good mimicry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I liked Kate by the time that I saw Elizabeth, but she wasn't one of my like great favorites. Yes. And so when we when we're going back to history, you know, this brings us to the point about the historical veracity of this film, which nothing tracks. <laughs> nothing that happens in this movie tracks the history. And I have this quote from Shaker Kapoor, and I'm going to read it out because I think it's very interesting. He says, I had to make a choice whether I wanted the details of history or the emotions and essence of history to prevail. Which is very funny because the emotions are so haphazard. (laughs) (laughs) The history is as haphazard as the emotions. I know, while I was watching it to prepare for this podcast, I had the screen up to watch the movie, and then another, I was had my phone out to follow with the Wikipedia page to try to figure out what the fuck was going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is going on here? What, like, who is Joseph Fine supposed to be historically? Because yeah. Robert Dudley didn't take part in a rebellion. Mm. Essex did, but that he's not a character in the film. Is it is it a she, combo of both? <laughs> I think it's supposed to be, but then that's kind of weird because it was like Dudley had an affair with one of her maids, so then I was trying to figure out if Kelly McDonough was supposed to be the maid that then gets pregnant to have Essex, who then later in life has a thing with Elizabeth when she's old and he's young. But no, then she just winds up dying from the poison dress. And so there was just a lot... Even, like, the, the his, usually in, in these movies, they tend to fudge the history of, mm-hmm. you know, the battles or the timing of, like, the national politics. Mm-hmm. That, of course, is completely issued here. Like, they don't, even, they don't even try. But even the interpersonal drama is fudged. Like, getting to know, like, what the, what the goss was was yeah. confusing. What I think worked for me at the time and what I still think works is this portrait of Elizabeth uh, becoming a head of state, which had led to a lot of reviews at the time comparing Elizabeth to the Godfather because the the journey of Elizabeth is sort of mirrors the journey of Michael Corleone 
And this is something that Murtada brought up to me as we were sitting down to record this podcast. And I'm happy that my initial reaction isn't captured on audio because I think that's ridiculous. (laughs) I like fundamentally just don't, I like understand in theory, but hate it. I hate it. I hate this comparison. I hate it. It's so, it's all of the worst things about the nineties to me (laughs) in the sense of, well, in the sense of, the obsession with, I feel like we're in an era where the obsession with the Godfather has died down to some degree as mm-hmm. being sort of the ultimate film mm-hmm. in American film history. There's, I think, uh, in every sort of, nos- any, any generation, there is a nostalgia for exactly 20 years before. So now our nostalgia is for like my best friend's wedding, yes. for example. But the 90s nostalgia object was totally the Godfather. And so, of course, all of these nerds no offense to my fellow film critics, uh, were sitting down to review Elizabeth, thinking, how can I relate this to the best movie ever made, The Godfather? Yeah, I, I take I take that note. I don't think it really mirrors The Godfather, although Shaker Kapoor has admitted that he lifted the scene right before Elizabeth transforms into Elizabeth, where um, she's reading scripture and they are... And then everybody is... is um, arresting and killing the conspirators against her, that he lifted that literally from the ending of The Godfather. Which is offensive to The Godfather. That is a beautiful scene. That scene is beautifully beautifully choreographed, beautifully filmed, beautifully paced. The scene in Elizabeth is rushed and incoherent, like much of the film. <laughs> yes. What I think is a more interesting point about this movie is something that when going on to research for this episode... I read um, a few interviews with Kate at the time. And one thing that she kept repeating in these interviews is that this is an interpretation of English history told from the point of view of outsiders. And not just any outsiders, but outsiders from the British Commonwealth. So Kapoor is Indian and she is Australian, two countries with a lot of sort of mixed history with... England as a state. Yes. Yeah, I think that does come through in the movie. Especially the opening minutes of the movie leading up to Kate's introduction. Elizabeth's introduction, excuse me. Um, You can can just say Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Leading up to Kate's introduction is extremely violent and focused on sort of the Protestant Catholic battle that was happening in Europe at the time with a lot more... I would say, contemporary passion than what is usually what is usually brought to bear on that conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there are ways in which it mirrors to some degree like different dynamics of like Indian politics mm-hmm. with regards to like Muslim and Hindi um, conflict over the last, you know, 100 years. But I think that that perspective is something that does come through in the movie to its credit, but that the movie kind of loses it midway through. Like it gets, and this is part of why I hate Joseph Fiennes in the movie so much, the film focuses so much on the love affair that what is more interesting in it is the Catholic dynamic, to me at least. Yes. Like the 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 power play of state and religion and the way in which a single person at that time was having to navigate what the state's relationship to religion is, Mm -hmm. is like a very fascinating and fraught topic. Mm -hmm. And the movie sort of drops it in favor of, I don't even know, like the bedsheets with the lesser fines. (laughs) Yes, it is. It does really concentrate a lot on that love affair and sort of, I think it even lessens Elizabeth's journey because it makes, the dissolution of that love affair and her disappointment in him as a reason for her becoming the stateswoman that she is when it would have been more interesting to just, you know, to talk to your point about the politics and how she became to be a statesperson. It's also, I think, too, a disservice to what was a huge part of Elizabeth's, historically, her foreign policy, which at the time was to 
basically pretend to people that she was going to marry them. Yes. <laughs> you know, like for 20 years, she avoided wars <laughs> with much larger states by being like, maybe I'll marry the king of Sweden. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's like, that is historically one of the more interesting ways in which a, for one of the first women rulers of a European state used gender as a, a means of manipulating the state. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to play that that's not just she's not getting married to these people because she's lost in love with Joseph Fiennes. Yeah, and that brings us up to sort of the Vincent Cassell subplot. Mortado uh, so. <laughs> was trying to find another way to say elephant in the room. Yes. Pink elephant in the room. So I actually, you know, so Vincent Cassell plays Anjou, who is a, a French prince, and he is the nephew of... Mary of Geese, who's played by Fanny Ardell, and he's one of the many suitors that proposed to Elizabeth, and this would have been sort of, if she took him as a, as a husband, it would have brought England and France together, and so she is actually, this is where I think the movie sort of presents Elizabeth as this very smart, intuitive woman who knows what's going on, so she somehow intuits that he's not that interested in her. And she uses that to sort of manipulate the situation to her benefit. So not to alienate the French, but at the same time, not to marry him too. Well, should we get into how this happens in the film? Yes. So how is, how is he introduced? Well, he has, a, he has a very spicy introduction, we should say. Yes. He comes on a boat. There are like these little rowboats. I don't know what the technical term for them is in, in Britain. Um, but they, they get on these little rowboats, all the French, and they come over and there's like a, one hot man, one hot man, <laughs> who's standing at the front of the rowboat and everybody's sort of like looking over like, mm, hey, what's up? What's Anjou good? looks good. Right. And so this, the hot man comes over and he's got his little mustache and then pops out from behind him, Vincent Cassell, to be like, it's me. <laughs> it's me. I'm Anjou. <laughs> <laughs> which is very, very, it's a very, very funny moment. But it's also, you know, back to our point of sort of the tone of this film. It's like... It, it's like a jack-in-the-box. Yeah, it took a, me completely out. Excuse it's, me, a jack-in-the-box. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't sort of like, wow, there is a joke in the middle of Elizabeth. No, because I am Anjou! <laughs> yes, I am Anjou! So back to our point about Shaker being Shaker Kapoor being an outsider, I think it doesn't always work, but he did not sort of feel a fealty to make this a very respectable portrait of Elizabeth. So it's sexy, it's violent, it's comedic, it's like all kinds of tones, which is interesting if even if it doesn't work. Do you think it's sexy? I mean it's carnal. I mean it presents Elizabeth as a sexual being. But, but, yes. And I think for the time it reads as sexy. But I wouldn't say that watching it now I feel like it's a sexy movie. And it's this, very awkward. <laughs> is this just because you don't like Joseph Fiennes? Because a lot of, if you, you have to find Joseph Fiennes attractive to think this movie is sexy. You're right. <laughs> You're right. The movie rests a lot <laughs> yeah. on, on being hot for Joseph Fiennes. Yeah. Um, but also, I think there is a way in which the, the way sex is approached in the movie is very much like a total surrender, mm -hmm. you know, where the court itself is this high stakes court, which then like the romance in the movie is they both give in to romance, you know, mm. but that concept and conception of sexuality and sensuality to me, doesn't read as sexy, it reads as corny. Like, inherently. Even if Joseph Fiennes was hot, which he's mm. not. But even if it did, I feel like it just takes me out of the movie. <laughs> it takes me out of the movie every time they're in that whole space of, like, I'm so looking in your eyes. And, oh, gosh, it's creepy. Um, you know, at the time, who I found sexy was Christopher Eccleton, who plays Norfolk. Definitely. He, Absolutely. Um, and he spends a lot of the time in in the movie just walking around. Yeah. Very forcefully. And I always love sexy walking. He's a bitter bitch. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I like it. Definitely. Definitely sexiest person in the movie is 
Fanny Ardant, <laughs> <laughs> who just swarms, like, swaggers in as Marie of Guise to shade everyone, know exactly what crazy movie she's in, have, like, like Susan Sontag gray streaks in her hair, and then die. <laughs> yes. After sleeping with Walding. Walding and up. maybe her nephew. <laughs> yes. I feel like the movie's implying that she's also fucking Vincent Cassell. Because they do kiss on the mouse at least a couple of times. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but also this movie, you know, talking about sex, we have to mention that Waltingham is presented as queer or at least bi-curious. Yeah, what was going on there? At the beginning, right? Yes. The first scene he is with a very young man where they're both half-dressed. And sort of it strongly implies that they just finished having sex. And that man was sent by Norfolk to kill him. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was watching that and I was like, is this his son? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like the movie is very coy about what's going on in that mm-hmm. room in a way that, I mean, maybe part of it is just, it's disorienting to see Jeffrey Rush at the present, partly because of like his recent... His recent cancelization. Yes. <laughs> His creep. recent canceling. Yes. <laughs> so it, it's disorienting to see him in that role, or to see him, and to see him in that role, and also to not know if historically the movie is resting on something. So that also comes up with the Vincent Cassell character, where he, the way in which he's rejected by Elizabeth is that he's revealed to be a transvestite mm-hmm. um his sexuality isn't really addressed it's just that he is in a dress um mm-hmm. and that is the basis of her rejection but i looked it up afterwards there's no historical evidence that that person in history anjou the elder duke of anjou mm-hmm. was queer was feminine in any way and it's such a big plot point in the movie yeah. and so they're there's sort of the way in which Kapoor is, I think, trying to modernize the the, the historical facts mm-hmm. winds up just being confusing a lot of the time, especially as it relates to queerness. Yeah, I mean, it's very confusing. I think, you know, what they have done in the script and in the movie is sort of present um, these ideals of, uh, of you know, that queer people existed, that sex happened between Elizabeth and other people, but the movie doesn't actually explore it in any way. It's just like, oh, there were queer people, so let's put one in a dress and let's uh, insinuate that the other one might be bisexual. Right. It's also the sex with Elizabeth. I had a lot of logistical questions. So I don't think that they would have been having penetrative sex. The movie is like kind of, it's kind of coy about what it thinks is going on between... Dudley and Elizabeth mm-hmm. um, in a way that's also confusing where it's like they're fucking but like she's not going to get pre- they're fucking he's sleeping with her every night everybody in court knows and she's not going to get pregnant and nobody's going to ask her about the, the chance of pregnancy I don't know I mean there is one scene where Lord Attenborough says to Lady Cat, who's played by Emily Mortimer that he wants to see her sheets every morning Right. So I think this scene sort of implies, to your point, that they might not have had penetrative sex, or then he would know that she wasn't a virgin. Right. But again, it's just like, it's, it's we're told that, and then it, there's no follow-through. Right. And I think that's also, I think, why it's hard to read the movie as sexy, because the sex itself is so confusing. Yes. <laughs> I did want to bring up one thing before we put the Vincent Cassell and Juice subplot to the... To uh, bed. To bed, yes. So, Anne Hathaway another actress we like, who is a huge fan of acting and actors, actually cited that scene where Elizabeth, played by Kate, goes and finds Anjou in a dress. And right as she sort of discovers him and she's telling him that I, you know, I still have affection for you, but obviously I'm not going to marry you, she sort of does this no-sniff, which is one of a lot of actorly gestures that Kate, who's known for her gestures does in the movie and this is one of the things why I love why I love her. I was waiting for you to get to that <laughs> how much you love the gestures. I love the gestures. But also Anne Hathaway loves the gesture because this one she says and this is a direct quote, Kate Blanchett and Elizabeth changed my life. There is a scene where she does this little no sniff and I swear to God I spent the first six years of my on camera career trying to reproduce it. 
I never succeeded. People kept saying, do you need a tissue? Sweet Anne. The thing with Anne, as opposed to Kate, is that Anne's face, and this is something that I love about movies, is that you really don't have control. (laughs) You don't have control of what your face is going to be like on camera. Mm -hmm. Anne's face is so, like, full of large features. She has huge eyes and a huge mouth and, like, a tiny little face to fit all of these large features on. If she makes the slightest move, you're like, ay, 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 take it back a step. (laughs) Whereas Kate looks very... Marble-esque, maybe would be the way to put it. She's Mm -hmm. very statuesque. Mm -hmm. She sort of has a sculpted elegance to her face that makes gestural acting work. You know, that even in close-up, it works. Um, There's a lot of glance... Like, I think in, in this performance, in terms of gesture, I think mostly about how much she's doing with the movement of her eyes in this movie, where she's constantly flitting back and forth and all over the place. And part of that is just because the staging is so incoherent. But part of that is also expressing some of the, I think, caged anxiety of this Mm -hmm. character. It's one of the more outwardly anxious performances that I think I've seen Kate give. Yeah, and also, like, this was her third movie. So she, I don't think at the time, had really honed what, you know, the camera can do mm-hmm. or what or how she sort of like fits the frame. But she does give these gestures. Another gesture that I really loved is towards the end where she's telling Lord Dudley off and basically she says to him, you know, I'm not going to kill you. You'll be kept alive to remind me that how close I came to danger. She gives that speech and the movie is full of these speeches that she gives. There's a lot of them, which is probably why people, including me, love her because she's very good at delivering the speech. But what I love about this scene particularly is after she gives the speech and she sort of retreats and then the camera is on her and she's just looking, she turns left and she turns right and she's looking at the walls as if there is something in Dudley's wall that is interesting when there is nothing. And it's just a little bit of moment where you can see Elizabeth just interact on screen as a person and before Shaker Kapoor jumps to the next crazy scene, there is a moment, that's a moment there we're just watching Kate, the actor, just hold the screen. And it's why I sort of, it's one of the reasons I love this performance. She do, you, does, do you still love it? I mean, it's the reason I fell in love with Kate. It was the first time I saw her. So I don't think that's going to change. But I don't think I liked the movie as much as I liked it at the time. And the only reason to see this movie is to just watch her, really. But also what I discovered about this with this time when I watched it um, a couple of days ago is that she is absent for long stretches of time in this film, which is was surprising to me because I remember this movie as the movie that was all about Elizabeth or all about Kate, where she's in every scene and she's not. Yeah, this is one of the rare movies where I feel that Kate is a bit dwarfed by the film itself. You know, one of the things that I think it's easy to respond to her as like a, an actor with is that she tends to be so dominant of the rest of the movie around her. And part of it in this film is that she's just not in every scene. Part of it is that the movie itself is doing so much. Yes. <laughs> part of it is that she's staged a lot of the time to be like this sole tiny figure within like this large world around her. Um, though the movie doesn't really make that as clear as maybe it could have been or as intentional as it could have been but it winds up being a film where she's sort of in and out a lot and you sort of feel that a bit I think in the performance itself where she is stringing together big scenes Mm. from like a relatively disempowered place within the movie like structurally that the movie itself is not giving her as much space to build the story across an entire landscape. Yeah, one of the things I noticed, and maybe this is what you're saying, is that it's a collection of scenes as opposed to a story. Totally. And she does have a lot of scenes where the camera's on her and she's delivering speeches. And of course, she delivers all these speeches very well. Like one of the scenes where she gathers the cardinals all around her. And this is the first time that Elizabeth is introducing the concept of the Church of England. And she has both Catholic and Protestant cardinals well, there. Bishops. Bishops. And then she, she has to sort of maneuver that 
and she delivers a speech, but then also she has to make fun of herself as a woman. And I, I like that scene. I saw that scene. To your point, it's a scene that tells a story in of itself. Because she has to deliver the speech and she also has to make fun of herself, but also has to sort of get somewhere by the end of the scene. And it's one of the scenes that really, the performance really worked and popped for me. In other scenes, she's just looking straight at the camera and delivering lines that are memorable, but maybe it doesn't build to a coherent story. I agree. I also think that she doesn't register as well in the early scenes where she's playing very girlishly. Mm -hmm. Part of it is the writing, and part of it is because so much of those scenes is dependent on setting up this romance that doesn't totally play for the rest of the movie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So she's sort of trapped in these very... um, corny (laughs) these very corny scenes uh in which she's trying to get across the innocence of the character in a way that is she's sort of left on a a wrong foot maybe yeah so another thing that i wanted to talk about is that this movie there is a lot of times when the dialogue is all about how elizabeth is a woman you know, like Richard Attenborough tells her, but you're but a woman. And then she tells the Cardinals, how can I persuade you I am but a woman? And then in the end, she's like, I am the virgin queen now. For God's sake, you are still my Elizabeth. I am not your Elizabeth. I am no man's Elizabeth. If you think to rule, you are mistaken. I will have one mistress here and no master. I know it's funny because everything is so terrible now. You forget how long the culture wars have been going on. But yes, this is like a very, in that sense, a very contemporary movie because I don't think any scriptwriter working today would be able to resist the many on the nose, hammer down how womanly her experience is and what it means to be a woman in the state of power and the sort of political significance of Elizabeth's womanhood. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is, as it would be if it were made today, corny. It's a little corny. It's very corny. And it's one of the things that completely didn't work for me. They even, you know, they even play a little bit like comedy. Yeah. And it's funny because I think... Kate seems to avoid roles that, like, force her to be in the position where she has to say that she's a woman um, or that she is making a statement about what it is to be a woman in her performances. It mm-hmm. seems actually surprising because I think a lot of, I think a lot of um, strong actors do tend to feel later in their career like they have to state what it is that they've been doing the whole time, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Kate has pulled back a lot from that as she has, like, matured as a performer. Or maybe she just hated saying these lines so much that she never played <laughs> that part again. <laughs> Rewrite it, bitch. Yeah. Those scenes play as comedy, but is this movie camp? Is it camp enough? It's camp in the sense, it's camp in the Sontagian sense where it's a movie that's taking itself seriously and the seriousness is what makes it silly, but it's not, it's not satisfyingly so, I would say. Like, while I was watching, I was remembering a great favorite of both yours and mine, Queen Margot. Yes. Uh, Wow. We should have a whole podcast series about just Queen Margot. Yeah. A, A historical movie that is both extremely sexy extreme well not just both it's many things all at once violent very violent so hot so historically bizarre yes (laughs) protestant catholic sexy fun then murders Mm -hmm. just like uh, a total bloodbath in love with like so many bodily fluids and dirt and dirt just (laughs) dirty horny royals (laughs) yeah and maybe Kapoor I mean Queen Margot came out about five or six years before Elizabeth so maybe Kapoor was inspired by it but just because you know there is a difference between making a movie about French royalty and British royalty you couldn't just maybe go all the way in right but I think Queen Margot is effective camp you know it's taking itself seriously but it's giving you a lot to work with whereas this is taking itself seriously but not sticking the landing 
Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, it, it zigzags between being like incoherently serious and then amusingly serious and then intentionally amusing in an awkward way. Yeah. I mean, I think the campy moments are the, the moments where it plays of Elizabeth as, you know, ob- when it objectifies Elizabeth, where, you know, it's all about the wing, it's all about the face, it's all about... So those scenes sort of work a little bit, I but mean, the rest of it, the tone of it is not campy enough. Certainly the scene where she fucks and then wakes up the next morning with curly hair <laughs> is camp. That's wild. That yeah. is maybe the thing that I will walk away... That's the biggest mystery of the whole movie for me. Like, I just want to know what happened. (laughs) I even looked it up afterwards. Part of it, apparently, historically, is that Elizabeth had smallpox Mm. and so was severely scarred as a result of smallpox and so struggled to grow her hair out. But Uh, that is not a part of the movie. (laughs) No, that is not a part of the movie She does not get cured of smallpox over the course of fucking Joseph Vines. She just wakes up with fucked up hair. Yeah. This film was in sort of the context of Kate's career. So this was her international breakout. And it was probably the first time many people like me saw her. And I think that's why she was so ecstatically reviewed. Because, you know, it was a big performance in a big movie where she is, the you know, plays the title character, even if she is not. In a lot of the movie, she's still sort of the movie is about her. She's the focus. She's the focus. She's the focus of every scene, including the scenes that she's not in. Yeah. And sort of the, that, I think that's the reason for this sort of amazing reviews she got. Like every review I tried to read, even the ones that didn't like the movie, were all about how great Blanchett is. I have a theory about why she's very well reviewed in this movie, which is we were talking about some of the other portraits of Elizabeth that had been made into films um, from The Private Lives of Elizabeth in Essex, which is a personal favorite of mine. Murtada reminded me of the Glenda Jackson version. Elizabeth R. Yes, in the 70s. And honestly, I think part of it is just that there hadn't been an Elizabeth movie for a while. (laughs) I think anybody could have been Elizabeth, been halfway decent in the movie, and Mm -hmm. would have gotten ecstatic reviews. It's like if, as if Macbeth was only allowed to be performed every 30 years. Of course, you're going to review Macbeth like as if they were the greatest actor of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like just getting cast in the movie was the guarantee that she was going to be well-reviewed. I think it's a good... I think it's still a fine performance. It's not my favorite of Kate's. But I think no matter what she did, she would have been received well. Mm-hmm. I think this... If I had seen the movie for the first time to you know this week like I did, it would not rank among the top performances, but it's still, this movie for people who love Kate, it's the first time they saw her. It's like, sort of like, at the time, it was this like, who's this? And you know, that sort of feeling of who's this, you know, stays with you, even though I think she has given many, many much you, better performances. You bought your stocks early. You I, were like, you were like, it's 1955 and I'm putting my money in IBM. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, you were on the train as the train was leaving the station. (laughs) I sure was. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it proved, you know, the movie sort of, like, not only did she get reviewed, but the movie itself made a lot of money. It made almost $30 million, you know. At the time, it got all these awards. It was nominated for seven Oscars, which is crazy to think about this movie getting Oscars. So it basically got best film, makeup, cinematography, costume, production design, score, and of course for Kate. I can see it for maybe, definitely for makeup. I think mm-hmm. the makeup in this film is phenomenal. The, like I think yeah. they do a, a really, really brilliant job with just making her face so pale, but without it seeming like she's wearing makeup. Mm-hmm. I think like the work that they did bleaching her eyebrows, spectacular mm-hmm. costumes. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to just say that Jenny Shirkor, who did the makeup, actually won the Oscar. So this was the only Oscar it won. So to your point, she deserved to win. And also one of the funny anecdotes about that is that she gave a very Kate-centric acceptance speech. She was on stage at the Oscars, and people can go watch this for maybe 
less than two minutes, like a minute. But she mentioned Kate's name five times in that one one minute, which is like stalker. But, you know, I feel it because I would too. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm overjoyed. And Kate, this is because of you, really. Kate looks so wonderful as our Queen Elizabeth. And the way she wore the hair and makeup that we applied for her. You did this. And Kate, for Kate Blanchett. But let's talk about the costumes. Yes. Let's talk about the costumes. I, I'm I was clapping just now thinking about how much I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely unmemorable. I can't remember any costume except maybe the, the sort of pink dress she wears at the beginning of the movie and that's just because it's the first time you see her. I knew we were going to be talking about the costumes so I tried to keep an eye on them and then very quickly learned that I should be trying to keep my eyes off them. <laughs> Many are very very ugly. Shape, texture of fabric, um, the colors chosen, there's not a coherent story that's being told by like what people are wearing. I think there's the, the final costume that Elizabeth wears as she becomes the Virgin Queen is probably the best costume to be in the film. Mm -hmm. But there's so much that is so poorly designed. And that costume would have probably been based on, you know, known portraits of Elizabeth. So that's probably why it's the one that looks good. Yeah. So many are so ugly. Wow. Just... And it was also that while I was watching, I, I was under the mistaken impression that these costumes were done by our dear friend Sandy. <laughs> Powell. Sandy Powell. And I just was watching thinking, did she hate this movie? Why would she, why would she do this? But then, of course, it's not Sandy Powell. It's Alexandria Byrne. And yes, I just think when I think of like the great uh, period costume designers, so much more is done with intention regarding how these costumes are supposed to reflect a character's journey and also how they're just frankly supposed to be part of the reason you go to the movie is to see pretty, co like not even pretty, but to see lavishness. Whereas this was ugliness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you. But Sandy Powell actually um, won the Oscar that year, not for this, obviously, but for the other Elizabethan movie, Shakespeare in Love, which sort of started the actress sexual wars of Kate versus Gwyneth, which I think lasted for many years, at least for me and in my mind. And I'll tell you, I wasn't, I was still living in Khartoum, I was not, I could not watch the Oscars except maybe the next day or whatever. And I didn't watch this ceremony, but I remember reading in Time magazine. I still remember that. And this was a few months after I've seen the movie that Kate was the favorite to win the Oscar, which when you go back and look at sort of the trajectory of that Oscar season now is all what we know of it. She was really not by the time we got to the ceremony, even though she won the... She won the Golden Globe, but so did Gwyneth, because they have two categories. But then Gwyneth won everything else, including the Oscar. And I blame that Time Magazine prognosticator for the fact that I was so disappointed that Kate didn't win that I held a grudge against Gwyneth Paltrow for maybe decades. Until Kate won for Blue Jasmine, and then I was like, okay, fine. I love Gwyneth. I will always love Gwyneth. I think Gwyneth has almost always been not just good in movies, but surprisingly so. So she gives me two pleasures at once, the pleasure of being good and the pleasure of surprising me that she's good. And I think Shakespeare in Love benefits from being just in general a more coherent movie. Mm -hmm. It's a much sillier movie. You can, you know, make whatever argument you would want to make about what the the overall quality of the film or the writing is. I personally find it very fun. It's also obsessed with how hot Joseph Fiennes is in a way that is completely <laughs> baffling to me. I just can't get over it. Um, who was the casting director in the late 90s who loved Joseph Fiennes so much? Was it just that like Rafe Fiennes was priced too high? Do you think that post-English patient he was like, my quote is going up by a full decimal point. Probably. And everyone was like, let's get his poor brother. <laughs> Which is funny because the movie that Kate did before this was Oscar and Lucinda with Ray. Going back to the Oscars, so the nominees besides Gwyneth 
and Kate were Meryl Streep, as always, for One True Thing, that was that year, Emily Watson, Valeri and Jackie, and Fernanda Montenegro for Central Station. So is your vote for Gwyneth? I think that, so I haven't seen Hillary and Jackie or Central Station, so this is very unfair, um, because who knows, maybe they would be my picks. I wouldn't give it to Meryl, though I love One True Thing, because she has so many. I, like, have to reserve in my mind a place for Meryl to win, like, six Oscars in the 80s, and that means I guess Gwyneth is my pick. I would definitely pick Gwyneth over Kate. I will definitely give it to Kate because of just all the years that I thought that she should have won for this performance. And, you know, Kate having three Oscars would be great. But maybe she wouldn't win for The Aviator if she had won for this. And I prefer her in The Aviator. I do want to bring up the great Oscar rivalry that no one talks about that year, which is Kate as Elizabeth and her future rival, in our beloved film Notes on a Scandal, Judy Dench as Elizabeth I in the same same year, different categories. Elizabeth I, Judy Dench played Elizabeth I in um, Shakespeare. Shakespeare in Love uh, and won the Oscar. So Kate, twice a loser. <laughs> she was twice a loser. <laughs> twice a loser, 1998, Kate Blanchett. Although Elizabeth I gives, me, gives us one of my favorite Oscar intros ever because Whoopi Goldberg came out that year. She was the host of the Oscars. She came out dressed as Elizabeth I, Judy or Kate, who knew she who knew she was emulating one of them. Good evening, loyal subjects. I am the African Queen. Some of you may know me as the Virgin Queen, but I can't imagine who. You're right that the best performance as Elizabeth I that year was Whoopi Goldberg. So thrice a loser, Kate Blanchett. <laughs> <laughs> so go watch that. Whoopi is the all-time best Oscar host. There's no one like her, no one better. Yes. One last thing I want to say about the Oscars. Um, this was Kate's first time at the Oscars. You would think that is she has been so many times as a nominee and so many times also as just a presenter. So... As somebody who follows the Oscars and loves the Oscar fashion, that Oscar dress remains one of her most impactful moments. She wore a Dior dress by Joan Galliano that was, had butterflies with an open back. It was beautiful. And also, when I was like trying to find information about this dress, I found out that it was later sold just a few weeks after the Oscars at a Christie's auction for $15,000. So somebody... It's a steal. <laughs> That's a steal. 15000 Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. So who is the lucky person who owns that Oscar dress? Mm, Gwyneth. <laughs> <laughs> Gwyneth, definitely. Gwyneth um, stole a lot that year. Let's not forget that Gwyneth stole her role in Shakespeare in Love from Winona Ryder's coffee table. Yes. Wow. Yes. Gwyneth is a lethal assassin. Um, <laughs> so do you want to say anything more about Elizabeth? My last thought on Elizabeth is that, as in almost all movies about royals, I do want to draw attention to the ladies-in-waiting. <laughs> ladies-in-waiting, one of the greatest concepts history has ever given us. And the ladies-in-waiting, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, are played by Emily Mortimer and Kelly McDonald, and they are so cute. So cute. Little babies. And I feel like Something that we didn't talk about with Kate is that she is such a baby in this movie. She is very She's young. a little fawn. She has. She even has her old teeth before Hollywood fixed them for her. She has her old teeth. She is just glowing with 26-year-old loveliness. Um, and it's very, it's very sweet in this movie, as crazy as it is, to see so many people who have become institutions in their own right, in their own versions of what that means, whether it's Kelly McDonald on television or Emily Mortimer in, like, weird independent films. Daniel um, Craig, who has a, a Mr. Bit Bond, part. yes. James Bond himself is the servant of the Pope in this movie. And it is very sweet to see all of their precious little baby Muppets' faces. They were all so young. And I, I have to say, like, if we go back to sort of, like, if Kate had won the Oscar that year, as I so wanted her, maybe she would not have had the career that she had. Because sometimes when you reach these highs 
so early in your career, you sort of lose your drive. I don't know that she would have lost it, but maybe it wouldn't have been as interesting a career. Hmm. Because I know you love Gwyneth, but I think Gwyneth has a much less interesting career because of her Oscar win. Well, Gwyneth became very interested in other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, Gwyneth now has Goop. We can talk about Goop on a later podcast. Yes. (laughs) But yes, I would say her interest in acting just precipitously dropped following her Oscar win. So I want to ask you a few questions about Kate. So you already told us that the first time you saw Kate was in... Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Rings. So what is your favorite Kate performance? Oh, it's Carol. We all know it's Carol. It's always Carol. It's got to be Carol. There's nothing that's even close. It's so good. It's such a great movie. The greatness of the movie then gets absorbed into, like, my memory of Kate's performance. And so clearly that's my favorite. And it's so... She's doing sort of in that movie, I think, like, a thesis on her own work in a way that's really interesting. And in a lot of ways, it does just feel like the culmination of her career. I think it would be crazy to me to say anything but Carol, including Blue Jasmine. (laughs) Yes. When do you think Kate was underrated? (sighs) Underrated? She's She's often accused of being overrated. She's quite overrated. I mean, it would be hard... It would be hard to not be overrated, given how highly she is rated. (laughs) (laughs) Underrated. I don't think this is exactly an underrated performance, because I think that for anybody who saw this movie and her performance in it, it is phenomenal, and she's phenomenal in it, and she was recognized and Oscar-nominated as such. But Kate Blanchett in I'm Not There is, to me, one of the most, probably the most underrated performance of her career, in that... I just think she's so magnetic in it and such fascinating energy with regards to gender in a way that's very rarely brought up in in reviews of her work, but is very much a feature of her work, including in Elizabeth. Uh, And I just think that it brings together in a lot of really surprising ways her gestural qualities as a performer and her tendency to be a very full-body physical performer, which is something that in Elizabeth, I think, she doesn't have the opportunity to do to the degree that, you know, she does in later films. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give her enough space in the editing, I would say, to sort of create a character with her whole body the way that she would in later mm-hmm. films and with directors like Todd Haynes who really understand how to how to work with her. But I think that's, for me, one of her very best and one of her least seen. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, and I think maybe to your point, that movie does not come as much when people talk about her is because not many people have seen it, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So who is your favorite Kate scene partner? Ooh, great question. I'll avoid saying Rooney Mara because we shouldn't talk too much about Carol. I think in that case, clearly her best scene partner is Judi Dench. (laughs) Notes on a scandal. Elizabeth to Elizabeth. Elizabeth x Elizabeth. Notes on a scandal, Judi Dench. No one's been better opposite Kate. No one has acted Kate off the screen in the same way. Judi, love ya. Love ya, girl. You have to come back in the episode where we talk about notes in a scandal. Nothing would please me more. So is there anybody you would like to see her work with? As a director, I think I'd like to see Kate work with um, like a Bong Joon-ho type filmmaker. Somebody who is open to more uh, almost archetypal, but like... Letting actors use their idiosyncrasies, I think, is one of his great skills as a director. Mm -hmm. And letting people build um, distinct performances within the same movie and then managing the tone of the film to include different textures in performances is a rare skill in a director. And I think that she's somebody who, at this stage of her career is capable of doing so much more than what most films ask for that I think it would be good for her to have somebody as a director who is going to just like let her go wild. And he's kind of chosen the other icy cheekboned Tilda Swinton. <laughs> yes, he's chosen <laughs> Tilda to be that person. <laughs> but I think that he would do well to have Kate. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'd love to see that. And just finally, is there something in the cultural perception of Kate that you like or something that you're annoyed by? Typically, Kate is somebody for me who I feel uh, rubbed the wrong way a little bit by her um, or by maybe by like cultural perception of her. It's like similar to Daniel Day-Lewis where she's somebody who is held up as being sort of the epitome of acting in a way that I think just inherently I'll feel sort of antagonistic Mm -hmm. about, which is not necessarily fair to her. I don't think that she's asking for that exactly, although sometimes she is. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to end this with a quote from Brenda Bleffin, who gave this quote at the Golden Globes when Kate won for Elizabeth. And Brenda was at the Golden Globes because she was nominated for Little Voice. And here is what she said, which I think sort of encapsulates what Maybe we both feel about this movie, or at least what I feel. She said, I only went to see Elizabeth because of Kate Blanchett. I thought she was absolutely fabulous, and I was delighted she won. I think she's a fabulous actress. I am not altogether sure about the film, but I did enjoy it, primarily because of her. She's fantastic. <laughs> she is fantastic. Thank you so much, Theo, for coming on the podcast. And before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? I have a tendency to write film reviews uh, in the New York Times. Almost every week I freelance for them. Um, But if you are working at a media organization or in specifically nonfiction television, my full-time work is as a union organizer for the Writers Guild. So if you have an interest in organizing a union, you can find me on Twitter at TMIBugsy. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening.